Well, saints, if you would please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And our text for this morning is going to be in verse 22. Now, Samuel is coming to Saul and he's a little frustrated because it's, he's coming to him trying to correct an action that Saul has done. And Saul refuses to believe that he has done anything wrong. And as we've been looking recently, that Saul is always says, hey, I want to be a part of telling you I've been obedient here. But when it comes to disobedience is, well, no, the people did it. The Philistines did it. Samuel, you did it. God did it. Someone else is the cause of my disobedience. It's never me. But at the same time, I'm always doing the right thing. And so Saul, in his mind, is, is constantly trying to elevate himself. Even when Jonathan went and routed the garrison of the Philistines, the word came out, what? Saul had routed the Philistines, and, and he didn't correct anyone. Saul, at this point, at one point, was little in his own eyes. And, and he's no longer that. And even Samuel will correct us. When you were little in your own eyes, when you said, hey, who am I and who is my father's house that you would choose me? We're the least. We're the least of all the tribes. I'm the least in my, the, 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 the family. And so there was a time where he was little. Even when he went to be anointed king during his coronation, he was hiding among the equipment. Well, where is he at? Oh, is he even here? Yeah, he's there. He's hiding. But then eventually what? Well, he began to believe his own press. He began to believe that he was something. See, understand that God called him while he was nothing, and believe it or not, that he still remains nothing. We learned that through, through Moses. Moses was 40 years there in Egypt thinking he was something, trained in all the ways. He had it all together, and he, he, assumed, he assumed that people would understand that, yeah, I'm your deliverer, but the people rejected him. And eventually, God takes this man who knows it all to the backside of the desert for another 40 years. And he begins to show Moses what? <laughs> You're nothing. What I want you to become is just a shepherd for the people. Care, 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 love. That's what I want you to do. And for 40 years, 40 years, he was something in Egypt. 40 years, he was nothing. And then for the next 40 years, God says, you know what? You know what you learned in the wilderness? You learned something in the wilderness that you could not learn in all the books of Egypt. You learned humility. You learned that, that I'm simply a servant. I'm a shepherd. And then God used Moses for the next 40 years. He used a humble man. Saul began with humility. And what happened was in the beginning of the chapter, as Saul had been told by Samuel, listen, this is what's going to happen. He, he makes a statement, and I think it's important in verse 1 and 2. It says, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Mark that, highlight that, make a note of that somewhere in, in your heart or in your Bible. Because it says, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. At this point, he said, listen, remember when I told you you were king? You listened to that. Those words were true, but now these words are just as true. And he says in verse 2, There thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek. 
Now, we went on Wednesday and we learned the different things why God did punish Amalek is because there in Exodus 17 that they would attack and Deuteronomy says that they would attack their rear people, those who were tired and weary. They were not just good people. Now, eventually we learned that, yes, they were basically a descendant of Esau. They should have been a family in this sense, Jacob and Esau, but they didn't treat them like family. They were abusive to them. And God says, listen, I'm going to deal with Amalek. And here what God is saying is, I'm going to deal with them. And Saul, I want you to be my vessel. And I need you to be obedient because God makes this statement, I will punish Amalek. Note that. It's it's not you get to choose how they're punished. God says, I will do this. I'm going to do this. I need to do this. This is my will. I've willed this. It has to come to pass. And so he then says, Listen, I'm going to punish him. And so he tells him how to punish him in verse 3. He said, I want you to go attack Amalek, utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them. Everything gets wiped out. And in case you're wondering what the everything is, every man, every woman, every infant, every nursing child, every ox, every sheep, every camel, every donkey... And then what begins to happen is this. Eventually what happens is Saul chooses to say, you know what, I'm going to keep Amalek alive. I'm I'm going to be the one to do that. And so it says in verse 7, Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is the east of Egypt. So Saul is attacking them. Verse 8, it says this, he also took Agag. Who's the he? Saul. Saul was attacking them. Saul took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Do you understand what it declares here? Saul is the one who initiates the idea of, I'm going to take a trophy. I'm going to keep this one guy, only one, but I'm going to keep one guy alive because, boy, will I look good. I'm going to look good keeping this king, the best of all the Amalekites. I'm going to take him, and he's my trophy. Now, eventually, he's going to set up a monument for himself on how great he did. But initially, I want you to understand, Saul initiates the idea of keeping a trophy. Note this, Saul initiates the idea that what God had declared can be altered. He's the one who started this. So what happens in verse 9? Well, Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep the oxen, the fatlings, and the lambs. So understand, as Saul began to spare Agag, then the people were like, well, what about this? This is good, this is good. And so all of the best of the sacrifices, they also kept. So Samuel will go to Saul and said, well, what, are you, what have you done? You've been disobedient. And so as he is there in his disobedience, he constantly says, no, 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 I'm, I'm not. I've done everything. The, the people, they kept the, the sacrifices. I've, I've been good. I've done everything that I've needed to do. And then Saul asked the question, why do I hear the sheep? Why do I hear the cattle? If you were obedient, why is this? He says, oh, it was the people. The people wanted it. Well, keep in mind what? You initiated it. And then what Samuel eventually comes and says to Saul is this. When in verse 20, Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalekites or king of Amalek. And I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took of the plunder, the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed. 
to sacrifice to the Lord your God. They're saying, hey, they got a, they got a plan here, and, 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 and yeah, I utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Well, you didn't utterly destroy the Amalekites if, you, if Agag is standing right there. Do you understand? He's already a little bit confused in what he believes is his logic and his mission. And then he said it's the people's fault. They're the ones who did that. So in verse 22, and here's our text. Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? You do this external stuff and you want to have an external stuff, but the internal is all wrong. It needs to be rewired. You got to fix the internal. And what he says is this. He makes that statement in the end of verse 22. Behold Listen to this, grab a hold of this, and he says this, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. To listen, just to obey. And I think it's important that we sometimes as Christians need to be re-reminded of this truth. Because when you take a look at the two things, what is obedience and what is sacrifice? And as a Christian, if you are going to obey rather than sacrifice, you have to know what they are. You have to have this so you can compare the two. Which direction am I going? Am I going obedience? Am I going sacrifice? Which is it? Now, now keep in mind that when you sacrifice, you can give something other than yourself. Make a note of that. Write it down. Get, Get it in your heart. When you sacrifice, you're giving to God something other than yourself. Now, when you obey, you can only give yourself. Do you understand? And when you obey, you give what? It's all of myself. See, I can give all of a lot of other things. And when I'm sacrificing, I can give an ox, I can give a sheep, and I can do all that. And keep in mind that I could sacrifice, and it becomes what? If I'm going to give a sacrifice, it can, not always, but it can become simply an outward religious observance. In other words, how many people go to church on Sunday not to hear from the Lord and come to worship the Lord and exalt the Lord, but simply say, I went to church on Sunday. And I think it's important to recognize that because we see here that a sacrifice can simply be external. I don't have to have my heart involved if it's a sacrifice. Here's the cow, kill it, I'm good. And we can do that. I'm sitting in church. I'm good. There's words on a screen, and I'm saying them in melody. I'm good. Where's your heart with that? Do you understand? It can simply be an outward religious observance where obedience is personal. Obedience is absolutely personal. Jesus, as we'll go on to see here in the study, says what? Obedience is the evidence of love. How personal is that? And I think it's important that we see here that is it, is it th- that desire of surrendering my will to whatever his will becomes. A, a sacrifice can be simply a temporary thing. I'm going to go to church, then I'm going to go do my thing. And that's what's going to happen. I'm going, to, I'm going to give God Sunday, but then Monday through Saturday are mine. And it, it can become a temporal thing. It doesn't have to be a permanent thing. But obedience is what? <laughs> You're God. What do you need me to do? What are you directing me to do? When it comes to obedience, keep in mind that obedience is an act of trust. When I'm listening to God 
And, and it's like when God speaks to me through his word or he speaks to me through his spirit, I'm recognizing that I'm trusting the guidance that God is giving to my life. Is my life surrendering? Is it, is it mirroring what he reveals in his word? See, when God gives me direction as a husband, do I do it or do I acknowledge this is what I should do, but I got a better plan? See, when God gives you any direction as, as a spouse, as a friend, as a worker, as a servant of God, do you follow what he declares or do you follow some of what he declares? Do you understand that obedience isn't a partial thing? Because Saul here does what? Well, he wipes out all the Amalekites with the exception of, I got a trophy. I can make this exception, but understand, it's not an exception that was his to make because God had made that statement, I will punish Amalek. This is my work that has to be done. You don't get to choose how to do it. This is my punishment. It, it's, it's my will. It has to be done. And when we recognize this, that when it comes to obedience, is what? It's rarely an empty act. It can be, but when it is an empty act, what? It's not really true obedience. And I love the fact that what we begin to see is when, when it's an empty act, it's simply a sacrifice. I'm going to show up in a church on Sunday. I'm not going to do anything spiritually. It's not going to do anything to move me, but I'm going to show up. It's an empty act. It's actions without meaning. But when I'm truly obedient, recognize those things in my head, move those things down to my heart, and I walk as an act of worship. I walk as a declaration of love. And so how many people, have you ever been in, in those, those places or in those meetings where the, the, the group will say the Our Father? There's a group, they get together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be the day. And then they, they say through it, and they, they get it right. But what happens is this, they, they, they say the Our Father without focusing, without focusing on, on, on the words and what they mean and how they should move me. It's not wrong to say the Our Father, but it's wrong to simply say the words. If you're going to say it, mean it, have a heart, recognize what it is that you're saying. And I think that's what's so important, that we, we don't recognize how beautiful this prayer is and how it's supposed to focus us and direct us to his heart. And all of a sudden, what happens? It becomes simply an act. It simply becomes something, it's a, it's a sacrifice. I'll say the words. How many times do we read our Bibles? We read our Bibles and, and we come to the point is, I don't even remember what I read. I couldn't even tell you what my devotions were. I couldn't tell you that God spoke to me. I couldn't tell you what he's trying to reveal in my own heart. But all of a sudden, we, we read the Bible and we look at words and we read words and we're not using the Bible as a mirror to set in front of me. So that I can say, what is your heart? What do you look like? What it is, Jesus? What is this about you? And how do you want me to imitate you? That I look at that and I want to become an imitator of this word. I want to become a doer of the word. And we read it and we don't ask God to check our hearts. We just simply say what? Check it off. I've read my Bible. I did a devotion. And, and all of a sudden it becomes what? It becomes empty. It becomes something that, that isn't really in our heart. And, and I'm not really wanting that mirror of light and truth to show me where I'm at. And then praying, God, help me to walk in this. How often do, do we just drop money in the agape box without really thinking, God, what you blessed me with? 
We write out a, a check and then we put in numbers and we slap it in there. But, but it's God, look at what you've blessed me with. Look at what you've done in my life. Look at what I have. And I want to honor you. I want to worship you. This is a recognition of what you have done for me. And I think it's so important that, that we begin to see here that there has to be what? Meaning behind the actions. There has to be this desire of love or recognition of I want you honored through that. We talked earlier, words on a screen. You can sing words that are on a screen, but how often is it the expression of your heart that you say, yes, these words that the Spirit has brought to me through, through the worship leaders, these words that you've given to me, I want them to just explode in my heart so I can declare them back to you. I want to declare your worth. I want to declare your love. I want to declare how amazing you are. And I want to ask you and worship you, say, change my heart. Make my heart yours. But all of a sudden, what? It becomes words on a screen. But not, not the cry of my heart. Not, not, not the pleading of my heart. Not, not the worship of my soul to God. You understand how you can make anything into, well, I've said the words. It's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice, something that I'm going to do because I'm here. And, and I think what happens is this. Real obedience is what? Are you drawing near to God? See, that's the key. Are you drawing near? Is he drawing near to you? And we recognize all these things. When it comes to going to God and saying, God, I want everything that you have for me. You guys know this passage. It's it's. it's he quotes it from Isaiah, but, but Jesus is talking to the religious leaders in Mark 7, and he makes this statement. I want to read just verses 6 and 7, because Jesus answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They honor me with their lips, but they don't have anything in the heart. They honor me with, with what's going on, but they have nothing in their heart. How often do we sing worship and we honor with our lips, but where's our heart? How often do we get in the word and we read it and acknowledge it in our mind, but where's my heart? You understand that true obedience is, is we, you have to give yourself sincerely and completely. You don't give something else. I'm giving me. You understand? You can have me, Lord. You've given me everything of you. I want to give you me. What an amazing thing that the God's church would be is if we as Christians would wake up in the morning, look to his word and say, God, this morning I'm giving you me so that your will would be done here with whoever you lead me to, whatever you call me to do. I want my life, I want my actions to become an act of worship. Regardless of how huge it may be or regardless of how menial it may be, can my life become an act of worship? And you might think, no, Lowell, you don't understand. Regan can do worship. Maybe we can enter into that worship. You can study the word and you can give us the word. But, but isn't the big things consider worship? Remember in John chapter 13, Jesus is something amazing. After supper, he, he takes his garment and puts it aside. He grabs a towel, girds himself. He gets a basin of water and he washes his disciples' feet. He just washes feet. And amazingly, the Holy Spirit takes that act 
and it makes it so profound that a simple act like that became an act of worship. It becomes an act of worship. God, I'm going to glorify you in this. I want to teach these men to, to serve and to love and to make themselves humble, not to elevate themselves, not to declare who's the greatest, but to become the greatest servant. That's what God desires. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, Paul would say. And this is what we begin to see. Saul chooses to say, I'm going to do obedience on my own. I'm going to do what I want, and I think it's going to be just fine the way that I do it. I want to give you two verses just to simply jot down. The first verse is this, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 17. It makes this statement. God speaking through Isaiah here says, he, he goes, here's the word of the Lord. And in verse 11, he makes this declaration. He says, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? You're coming in empty. You have stuff, but you don't have a heart. He says, verse 13, bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons and Sabbath and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, just as an act, he said, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil doings from before my eyes. Cleanse, cease to do evil. In verse 17, learn to do good. You understand? He says, you can do evil and then go do a sacrifice. What good is that? He says, I want you to do good. Seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. This is God's desire as he wants an understanding of, I want your hearts, not simply an act. And I want obedience, but I want obedience from the heart. I want you to say, yes, here's my life as an act of worship. Take it. I'm going to give you my life as, as just as this reasonable service, a reasonable worship for what you've done. In Amos chapter 5. Verses 21 through 24, it says this, God speaking again, he says, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assembly. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard the fat, fatted peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Amazing. Here they are singing. It's noise. It's just noise. You know what's amazing to God? The heart. When the heart sings. When, when, when the heart moves. See, you, you, can, you can even sing without words, but your heart is what? Making a melody to the Lord. When your heart sings, this is beautiful. And when, you're, when your voice mirrors your heart and sings, it's beautiful. Until then, it's just noise. He says in verse 23, take away from me 
the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. Absolutely amazing. And then he says this in verse 24, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. I want, I want obedience. I want your heart. I want you. I want willing sacrifices. I want you to yield yourself. Give me you today. And, and so when we recognize what Saul has done, Samuel had made that statement in verse 22. He said, listen to obey is better than sacrifice. What he does then is absolutely amazing. He actually defines in, in, in the next couple of verses, the Holy Spirit for us, what is going on here. Samuel calls the act that Saul did. In verse 23 of our text of 1 Samuel 15, he says this, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Rebellion, rebellion, a point of my heart that is not just disobedience, it's not just a mistake, it's a willful desire to do something other than what is directed. Now, we all know as parents, what do we do? We train up our children. We train up our children, and children are what? Well, they're great at making mistakes. And when they make a mistake, what do we do? We teach them. We train them. Well, listen, this is what you did. This, this is wrong. Let me, let's open the Bible. Let's see why it's wrong. So, so here, God in his word says it's wrong. But now note this. This is what you can do instead. So you don't just say no. That's not training. That's just disciplining. But when you, when you train up a child, say this is what's wrong, but this is what you can do instead. You always give them something instead of the wrong. Just don't say, don't do this, don't do this, and have them figure out what they're supposed to do. Don't say, don't do this, but you can do this instead. This pleases God. And so when we're training up our children, we, we constantly, they're going to be making mistakes. Don't do this, but do this instead. Don't do this, but do this instead. Eventually, what happens is you're going to see or you're going to know through the Spirit that they're not making mistakes anymore. They're just doing what they want to do. That's rebellion. And guess what? We correct rebellion. We don't correct mistakes. We don't discipline mistakes. But we have to discipline rebellion. Listen, we've talked about this. We've talked about this. We've talked about this. We've talked about this. We said what not to do. We said what should we should do. We've looked to God's word. We've looked to his heart. We've prayed. We've asked forgiveness. And you're still doing this to tell me something in your heart. You got to get that out of your heart. And I'm going to help you. I'm going to put literally the board of education to the seat of knowledge so that you'll remember this discipline. And I think what's important is that we begin to see here that that mindset. And so he says rebellion is as witchcraft. The amazing thing about witchcraft is it's only really that the term witchcraft is used once here from this word in the Hebrew. However, the rest of the time the word is used as divination. The same thing that we looked at was we were going through the Proverbs where it talked about the divination of the king. Remember in verse 10 of Proverbs 16, divination is on the lips of the king. His mouth must not transgress in judgment. What the divination is, is this. It's speaking with authority. When God tells you to do something and then you say with the same authority of what God's told me to do, I can change it. When God said utterly wipe out the Amalekites, you said, well, I can utterly wipe them out with the exception of the one that's really going to make me look good. I'm going to parade this king in front of me. I'm going to parade this king because he is my trophy. 
And as Saul initiated that mindset, the people followed. Oh, you mean we can keep something good? We can have a trophy? Oh, yeah, you can have a trophy. That's what Saul did. And as they were keeping the oxen, the keeping the sheep, Saul didn't correct them. Saul didn't go and start killing the oxen and sheep. He let them keep them. He said, if I keep a trophy, you keep a trophy. Who, who am I? And we begin to compromise. As soon as we compromise God's word, how can we correct someone else? When they compromise it as well. But he says this. So amazing. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. He said, Saul, you have made a declaration in your own mind, in your own heart, and you've elevated your thought process to be equal with God's command. That's a scary thing. That's divination. That's divination. That, that, that's the, the, the witchcraft. That's speaking with something of authority. When God gives you a word and you countermine that word and you correct that word by saying, well, I'm an exception to this word. No, no, there are no exceptions to this word. His word is his word. But you can say, I'm an exception. It's true for everybody else, but it's not true for me. I can do this because my heart is... No, if you do this, your heart isn't right. When God gives a word, it's a word. And you have to accept that word as that word. And if you begin to say, I'm going to change that word, adapt that word, or manipulate that word so that I can do what I want to do, that's rebellion, and it's as the sin of allowing a word that you want to be true to be equal with the word that God declared already was true. When your word begins to change it, when your word begins to adapt it, and this is the first thing here that Saul is told by Samuel, what you have done is you've elevated your thought process and you made it equal with God's commands. The second thing he does is this. Rebellion is a sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Stubbornness. The, the, the term is, is used here as stubbornness, but for the most part, when you see this term in the Hebrew, it means to urge. It means to press. It, it's a constant pushing. You don't understand what stubbornness is? And constantly pushing against. Constantly. And and. Understand, I, when I was younger, I, I understood that the reason I was so stubborn, this is only me, not, not, not you, but I was only so stubborn because I had German in my bloodline, and I thought that's what made me stubborn. And so if you're German, I'm, I'm sorry, I just thought I was stubborn because I was German. And God's word says, no, you're, you're stubborn because what? You're a sinner, and you're blaming it on something else. And I want you to recognize it's a constant pushing. It's it's this constant. That's what stubbornness is. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do what I want. And God says, don't do this. Don't do this. I'm going to do it. And that stubbornness, he says this, that stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. When you push against God's word, constantly saying, I can change it. I can adapt it. I'm the exception to it. He says, that is basically iniquity. You are sinning when you're constantly saying, what I want is different from what God declares, but because I want to do it, I'm going to do it. Rather than saying, God, here's my life. Here's my heart. What do you want from me? And all of a sudden, we begin to see here that as he makes that statement, the stubbornness is iniquity and idolatry. What's idolatry? (laughs) Well, putting something equal with God, raising it above its normal position. 
That's when, when, when you have something that God says, you've made this into an idol. There are things that are good and things that can be, but when you elevate them into a position that is, is higher than what God intends them to be in your life, then it becomes an idol. And, and so be careful of things. I was once blessed with, with this amazing old car when I lived in Southern California, and it became, it was just an idol. I literally, believe it or not, I had this little paint thing that if there was a, a rock or a fleck that came up on the side of the car that put a little tiny paint was missing, I could take and I could dot the paint, and it would be smooth again. It's like, oh, this is, this is my car. And, and, and so it was, it was, it was kind of like a Starsky and Hutchmobile. It was, and I love this car. And it was, it was amazing. Different color, but it was the same kind of car. And, and, and eventually God says, hey, you know what? It's, it, I got I to gotta, I gotta humble you with this car. And so he allowed us to get a cat. He gave us a cat. And what the cat did was this. Believe it or not, this cat was, was I, I say it was Beelzebub, but I have to believe it was probably God because he's trying to get me to no longer idolize this car. But I was making the cradle, big cradle for a friend. They just had a baby. I was making the cradle. I actually had some paint that was sitting in the garage. And so it was, it was in a, a, a tray and we needed to go somewhere. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to cover this and, and leave it. I got to get done. And so went in, got ready. We were ready to head out. And I had realized that what this cat did is the cat went and walked into the tray, got its feet with paint, and then jumped on the car and started walking on the car. No, you think that's bad. Then the cat went back to the tray, walked in the tray again, then jumped into the car and started making tracks in the car. And all of a sudden, we come out, and the kids are already in the car, and I see the car, and I see the cat, and I see what the cat has done, and I'm picking up this cat, and I'm about to punt it over the house. And, and, and I could see my wife is praying, Dear God, don't let my husband do this act in front of the children. Please, Lord, change. And, and I set the cat down. Saw the kids, saw my wife, saw the look of horror of what she knew I was going to do. And I set the cat down. Well, eventually, what did I do? I went back to the car when we came back, and I cleaned up all the paint. Oh, all of a sudden, my Dagon was down. I picked him back up. It's like, you're going to be okay. You're, you're going to be fine. I fixed you. And eventually, what God did was this. I was on the freeway. God allowed that car to throw a rod. And it sat in my driveway. I kid you not, like a broken Dagon. For over a year, over a year, it sat in the driveway. We're, we're going to fix it. We're going to fix it. God never allowed it to be fixed. Eventually, I'd have to say, come get my idol. Now, now keep in mind, a car is a car. You need it to get around, and it's good. But when you elevate it, it becomes bad. And this is what he says. When, when my own opinion is higher than it should be, when higher than what God desires it to be, and that's why he says, the stubbornness is iniquity and idolatry. When I believe so strongly that my will is equal to God's command, that my changing his command or adapting his command to say, yes, I've utterly wiped them out with the exception of this. How many times have God said, deal with your sin? He said, well, I've, I've toned it down. I do it less. It's not as bad as it used to be. And God said, well, I've called you to utterly cut it off. I've called you to utterly deal with it. 
And yet, what do we do? We compromise and we think, the, because I've done more than I used to, because I've done a little to it, isn't that enough? But yet, we compromise what God calls us to do. The third thing, first was the, the, the rebellion. Second was the stubbornness as, as, as iniquity and idolatry. And then, in verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. The third thing, and I think this is so amazing that, that, that here Samuel would speak of this to, to Saul is one, rebellion, two, stubbornness, but then the heart of wanting others' approval, that I'm willing to compromise what God told me to do because I want someone else to be pleased with me. I want them to look at me in, in a way that, that elevates me in their eyes. And this is what he couldn't handle. He couldn't handle saying, listen, you guys aren't allowed to do this. God doesn't want us to do it. It isn't for us. But all of a sudden, what we begin to see is this, that when God says, I don't want you to do this for the eyes of men. I want you to do an obedience to me. But you can make anything, anything spiritual that you do at what? So that people look at you in a more special way. Remember what Jesus, he was talking to the Pharisees, talking to the people about the Pharisees, and he made this statement. Three verses I want to give you in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 verse 1 makes this declaration. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Don't do things so that people see you. Don't do things and say, oh, look at what I've done. Look at me. Look at my spirituality. Look at how I'm so this and so that. In verse 6, he says, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret, in the secret place. And your father who sees you in secret will reward you openly. See, they used to just pray in, in, the, in the streets. They used to pray so that everyone could see how they pray and, and listen to my prayers, how spiritual they are. He says, no, if you really want to pray, before you start praying in public, have a prayer life in private. Have that. And when that begins to be a private prayer life, then add that to the public prayer life. I think it's so important. And, and literally, I don't know if you've ever been in a prayer meeting, but you can actually, when you're listening to the prayers, you can hear the prayers of those who have a prayer life in private, and you can hear the prayers of those who have a prayer life only in public. And it's evident. The Spirit gives you that recognition. Don't be that one. And, and, and I think what happens is this, that in verse 16, he makes this declaration. He says, moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward so that you don't appear to be fasting before men. When you do what you do, don't do it for men. Don't even let your right hand, your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Just say, hey, hey, I'm just going to do this for the Lord. And when you do that, it's one of these acts of what? It's obedience. Regardless of what people want you to do, I can't do that. I have to do this. And in and, and, and regards to what people want you to do, recognize that you have to do what God has called you to do. There's a warning. There's a warning when we do sacrifices because it's something other than my heart. My heart doesn't have to be involved in a sacrifice. It's simply an act. It's have a, have a goat, have a sheep, have an ox. God, it's yours. I don't have to be involved. Obedience, true obedience is 
yeah, Lord, here's my heart. Here's my life. I want you to take it, and I want you to be glorified with it. So you direct me through your word. You direct me by your spirit. I want to be obedient to you. That, that's my heart. Just help me be obedient to you. There's a portion of scripture, and I want to share with you just really what it is that God wants. And that, that passage I'm going to read to you is found in Jeremiah chapter 7. In Jeremiah chapter 7, a couple of verses I'm going to read. I'm going to read verses 21 through 24, but it makes this statement. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat meal. For did I not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices? Now, here's what God says. I told them what I wanted with these burnt offerings and sacrifices. Note that. This is what here, Jeremiah 7, I've told them what I wanted their burnt offerings. I told them what I wanted their sacrifices. Verse 23 of Jeremiah 7 says this, but this is what I commanded them saying, obey my voice. I'll be your God and you shall be my people. And walk in all the ways that I have commanded you that it may be well with you. You understand? Obey. Obey. Hear my voice. Yeah, the sacrifices are one thing. But if it's not done with obedience, if it's not done with your heart. And then in verse 24 it says, Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but they followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. You understand that everything that we do for God is to do what? Draw us closer to God. You understand when you say, God, what do you want from my life? You're going to say this, come close to my heart. Whatever it is, I want you to come close to my heart. When my wife and I have the opportunity to spend time with grandchildren, I don't want them over so that I can accomplish more deeds. Please let the grandkids come because I need rakers and shovelers and, and people to do this. Now, now, granted, when they come, they do get rakes, they do get shovels. But what happens is this. They get their rakes and we spend probably about three minutes raking up leaves. And then we start throwing leaves and then we start piling leaves and it becomes this free-for-all. Or in the winter time, they get little shovels. And so they start shoveling, and eventually what happens is it turns into shovel rides down the hill. It turns into, and, and the end is worse than the beginning. And after about 20 minutes in the winter to 30 minutes, they're all wet, they're cold. Well, let's go inside the house, and you can have some hot coffee or hot chocolate. And, 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 and then I'm out there still shoveling, <laughs> cleaning up the messes of all the slides and all the snow everywhere, and, and finishing the leaves and making piles so that when they come back out, I can throw them in the piles. It's not about the work. It's about, I want to be a part of your heart. I want you to be a part of my heart. This is what it's all about. And do you know what God wants from you? When he says, here's my life, what do you want? Come to my heart. Come closer to my heart. The greatest thing that we have with our grandchildren is when they just cuddle up to us and they just sit with us and they just want to be with us for no other reason than just to be with us. And I love that. And they get to experience our heart. We get to experience their heart. And amazingly, with us and our grandchildren, there is love. There is this incredible love. I've never, 
ever believed that I could be loved by, by people to the degree that my grandchildren love me and I see them love my wife. It, it, it breaks my heart. Loves, I love it. I love it. I love it. It overwhelms my heart. When God says, this is what I want. This is the work that I want. Understand that he, he really says, I don't just need stuff done. I need you to come close to my heart. And by doing this, it'll bring you close to my heart. It'll reveal my heart. It'll reveal who I am. It'll reveal what I want. When I am obedient, not just sacrificing, not something other than myself, when I'm giving only myself. Do you understand? That's what obedience is. It's only me walking what he wants. It's only me and my heart revealing, okay, you can have my life. Just come closer to me. Come closer to me. This is what I want. And, and what happens is when I'm walking in obedience saying, God, you have absolute authority over my life. I don't have any authority over my life. Why? <laughs> I've been bought with a price. Therefore, I want to glorify you in my body and in my spirit, which is yours. You purchased me. I am yours. And so there's this trusting as I yield myself over to his will, as only he knows the end from the beginning. When he calls me to do something, why does he want me to do it? One, it's going to reveal his heart, but two, he knows, he knows the path that I should be taking. And when I take that path, absolutely something amazing happens. He is honored, he's glorified by the simplest obedience. And then others, others are blessed. By my simple obedience. Well, let me give you a point. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 5, there's this beautiful passage where Jesus comes and he has something that he needs to do and he asks Peter a simple, simple task. In in Luke chapter 5, it begins this. Verse 1, So it was as the multitude pressed about him, that is Jesus, to hear the word of God, that he, Jesus, stood by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Well, then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little from the land. Can you imagine Jesus goes to Peter? Now, Peter just got done bringing in the washing the nets. They spent some time and didn't have a whole lot, but all of a sudden his boat's there, and Jesus says, hey, I need it. Can I have your boat? Push me out. Peter does. He pushes him out. And you know what amazing See, Jesus was being thronged, and all of a sudden now, as he backs away, he can sit. Look, look at what happens. It, it says in verse 3, when he'd gotten into the, one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down. He taught the multitudes from the boat. And when he'd stopped speaking, he said to Simon, now I want you to launch. Notice what happens. Peter's simple act of obedience, of allowing when God says, push me out in your boat. And he did. The Lord was able to rest. The Lord was able to teach. And the multitudes were able to hear. <laughs> All he did was what? I just said the Lord could have my boat, and I pushed him out a little bit. I kept, kept a rope on it so he wouldn't drift. But I just pushed him out a little bit. You understand how God honors this? That simple act of obedience to bless the people, bless the Lord. Now he says, I want you to launch out in the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon said to him, Master, we've told all night, caught nothing. Although I know what I think, I'm not going to be stubborn. I'm not going to allow my will to trump your will. Now keep in mind, you're a carpenter. You probably make some good stuff. I've been a fisherman. 
We know the fish are at night, and I've told all that. We've caught nothing. But he says, nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. He obeys for a second time. And this time, the obedience, note what it does. When they had done this, verse 6, they caught a great number of fish. Their net was breaking, so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so that they began to sink. There was so many fish that both Peter's boat and the boat that was next to them were now filled with fish so that they were sinking. That's the kind of fishing I like. When the boat is filled and it begins to sink, we're good. It's a good day. And they had two boats that were beginning to sink. And then what happened was this. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He's saying, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll catch men. And so when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all. They left it and they followed him. Do you understand? What is more important? Two boatloads of fish? or being able to walk next to your Savior, being able to walk with Him. And I love the fact that what we begin to see is that, that when I am obedient, I'm acknowledging His authority. I'm acknowledging He knows the end from the beginning. I acknowledge that I see through glass darkly, but I accept His plan for my life. And the plan that He wants is this. Walk with Him. Walk with Him. There's going to be things he's going to have you do, but walk with him. This little obedience goes so far. Jesus actually defines what obedience is, and he calls the obedience an evidence of love. Let me just read you just a couple of verses from John chapter 14. In John 14, verse 15, he says this, If you love me, keep my commandments. You know that passage, we know it well. But in verses 23 through 24, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. He who does not love does not keep my words, and the words which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. It's absolutely amazing that what God wants is this. I want you to just walk in obedience. That's it. Walk in such a way that when I give you a word, that word becomes to you life. I need to internalize this word, and I need to be obedient to this word, and I cannot compromise the word. There is this beautiful, beautiful passage in the Old Testament found in Exodus chapter 16. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to that portion. Exodus is pretty easy to find. It's only the second book in the Bible, 16 chapters in, and you're actually going to see when the, the people were journeying, eventually they were just hungry. And they were actually saying, we wish we went back to Egypt because at least in Egypt, we had the leeks and the onions and it was all there. And so, you know, we had the, the, the pots of meat and we had bread to the full. Now, I don't know about you, but that's what they thought they had in Egypt. And so what happens is this. They said, in Egypt, we had plenty. Here in the wilderness, we have nothing. So in verse four, the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. We know that to be manna. And the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day. Then he says this. Notice what it says at the end of verse 4. They're going to gather every day. 
gather every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Every day it's a test. Do you understand? And what we recognize is here, it's manna. Man shall not live by bread alone, but what? by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every day God wants to give you manna. Every morning he says, I want you to gather from my word. I want you to gather from my spirit. I want you to gather from my heart. And I want you to do what? When you gather, be obedient to what it is that you've gathered. You, you can't compromise it. And so it makes this statement, I'm going to test them. Everything is a test. And so every morning when you go into your Bible, God says, it's a test. Are you going to listen to me? You can do what you want to do. Are you going to use it to draw close to me? Or are you going to do what you want to do? And he makes this statement, it shall be, verse 5, on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. And Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, at evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaint against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? So also Moses said in verse 8, this shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full, for the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. All of a sudden, God says, I'm going to give you manna. But with the manna comes this. With the manna, you can gather a certain amount every day, and then the day before the Sabbath, then you gather twice as much, and I don't want you to gather any on the Sabbath. And so what happened was, Verse 14, when the dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance just finding the frost on the ground. And when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it's the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. And so they gather. They gather enough for every person to have the food for the day. But he makes this statement. He says, I want you to, on the sixth day, gather twice as much. Because on the seventh day, you're not going to have any. Well, verse 22, so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one, and all the rulers of the congregation told Moses, and he said to him, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow's a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, and boil what you will boil, and lay it for yourselves, all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up as the Lord commanded, and it didn't stink. What does it mean? Well, eventually what God said is this. In verse 19, he says, I don't want you to leave any of it until morning, notwithstanding they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and it stinks, and Moses was angry. He said, you get what you get for a day, but you don't take it into tomorrow. Do you understand that God's word for you today, he wants a new word for you tomorrow. Why? He wants you closer than you were today. Then he wants you closer than you were the next day. Do you understand? He constantly wants you closer to his heart. This is God. And what happens is this, we think, oh, yesterday's word is just as good. Do you think that Sunday's word will get you through the rest of the week? It'll get you through Sunday. It's meant to get you through Sunday. It's meant to get you to chew on things. That's why we have the Wednesday, because it gets you through another day. But it's up to you to feed yourself on, on, on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday as well. Have your devotion, because God wants to speak to your heart. On Sunday here, it's corporately. What does God want from us as a body? He wants us to draw near to him. He wants us to recognize that when you give a word, it's a word. That I can't compromise it. I can't dictate it. I can't change it. Your word is your word. And I think it's so important for us to recognize that, you know what? It's not simply just going through emotion. 
not simply just opening my Bible, reading a couple of verses, forget what is there, and just move on. Do you understand? It's internalizing it. It's chewing on it, preparing it to come into my heart, say, God, I'm going to pray before I read. Let your word move my heart, draw me to you. Let this word become this mirror. Show me where I'm in error, and then give me your spirit that I can walk in obedience. Don't compromise what God has called us. But all of a sudden, that's what Saul does. He said, I, 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 I was obedient, with one small exception. And that exception is, is, is okay, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's not to God. Because as you've rejected the word of the Lord, Samuel would say to Saul, God has rejected you. No longer will you be king. And this was the one act of disobedience where the, the, the kingdom was, was, was taken from Saul. No longer would he be the king. Now, keep in mind, he wouldn't let it go. He'd still hold on to it. He's still going to grasp onto this. This is my kingdom. My kingdom. This never was your kingdom. They never were your people. They're gods, always gods. And you're a steward of what is gods. Realize that. So when God calls you to walk in anything, understand none of it is ever yours. It's all his. And you're a steward of it. You're to be obedient in your role as a steward. This is a huge thing. When you recognize as a husband and wife, your marriage is God's. It's not yours. Your children are God's. They're not yours. You're a steward of them. And you need to look to God and say, what is my role as a steward? What are you called me to do in this role that I can glorify you and bring everyone closer to you? That I can hear from you and bless you. Like that little obedience of Peter, everyone was able to hear the Lord. And he was able to rest and teach and, and, and allow his word to go forth. All because of one simple act of obedience. Do you realize that that's what you're doing? Every time that you walk in obedience, you're allowing people to see the Lord in you. You're allowing them to see the Lord's authority in you. And you're yielding to his authority. And that you love him. And this is an act of love. Not as an act of sacrifice, but as an act of love. When it comes to love, you can do a whole lot of things in love. But if it doesn't have love, as 1 Corinthians 13 says what? Sounding brass. You can give your body to be burned. It's nothing. If it's not love. If you're not doing this to draw closer to him, and that's all he wants, draw near to me. Just draw near to me. Experience my heart. I, I, Jesus said, I died so that you could come close and experience this intimate relationship. Don't squander it through simply sacrifices, acts of, of some outward religious observance. I died so that you come near to you with your heart, your whole heart. And so may that be what we do. May we recognize it, obedience taking his word, internalizing it to use that word to draw closer to him and more and more intimacy is better than any outward observant that we could do as Christians. And how many times have you seen Christians outward, 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 but none of it's in the heart? May that not be said of us. Amen? Well, Father, we're so grateful for this word, how faithful you are, Lord, to give this word. And we see that every time that, that someone walks in obedience, every time that someone walks, there's, there's your glorious scene. Noah would build an ark in obedience. Abraham would sacrifice his son, his only son Isaac. All these people would, would walk in obedience. And, and they would acknowledge your authority. May we be those children, your children, to acknowledge your authority. Not simply do outward signs. Now, not simply give you something that isn't of us, but give you only what is of us, only what proves our love, only what, what testifies of our love that we can give to you ourselves. 
openly, honestly, in obedience to what it is that you speak to us through your word. Knit us to that heart, we ask in Jesus' name and all the saints of God.